0: Hello there, and welcome to the Racing Home podcast, brought to you by Women in Racing and Simply Racing, with support from the Racing Foundation and Kindred Group. I'm Naomi Mella, an equine vet and podcast producer, and in this podcast, we're talking about work and family. It's challenging being a parent, whoever you are and whatever you do, and it's particularly challenging being a parent when you work in horse racing. It's 24-7, 365 days a year. So how can we best help people manage being both great parents and valued members of the racing family? Following the Racing Home Research Project, in this podcast we'll be exploring ideas around parenthood and career progression, and how to do things differently. I'll be talking to trainers, jockeys, physiotherapists, and a host of the sport's experts and decision makers about their experiences, their stories, and how together we can shape a positive future for all families in horse racing.
1: It's been a while since we released our chat with Alice Plunkett and Leanne Pipe, but it's now 2023 and we are back for season two of Racing Home. The first phase of the project went really well and we are delighted to have received support and funding from the Racing Foundation and Kindred Group for the next stage, which will allow the team to embark on further research and roll out the groundbreaking physiotherapy programme produced in conjunction with the IJF and Racing Welfare. We can't wait. I mentioned that we've talked to a whole host of professionals across horse racing to bring you a range of perspectives. There's Lizzie Kelly on the jockey front, Claire Kubler from a trainer's perspective, Leo Powell from the Irish field, and a whole heap more. And don't forget to share the series with friends or anyone you know that might find it useful and interesting. We'd really appreciate it. My first guest for season two is Amy Bannister-Bell a breeder, backer, producer of horses, instructor, coach, and mother to a sibling group of three adopted children with her partner, Alice. I can't wait to bring you this conversation. It was so good to talk to Amy. So here we go. You're not from a horsey background. So what was your first experience of horses and how did you kind of fall in love with them to begin with and then think that that might be a part of your career?
2: Uh, well, it was quite early. Even though my parents went horsey, uh, bless them, they got me a, got a horse to come do pony rides on my third birthday and I just oh, refused wow. to get off.
1: <laughs> you started early. Okay. Yeah, good. I just
2: refused, refused to get off the whole day. And then they just took me to the riding school and it was that sort of progression from there and ended up. Owning a riding school pony along the way, and I had some really good people around me. Although my mum and dad weren't horsey, they made sure that I had really good people that knew
1: what they were doing, sort of showing me the way. I think it's really interesting that because I'm also from non horsey parents and started in a riding school as well. And I think it's something we don't really talk about that much in particularly racing, but equestrianism in general. There's a kind of assumption that everybody comes from a really elite horsey background yes exactly that your parents are really into it that you're born into it and I think that riding schools have a really big place in encouraging people into riding who are not horsey and particularly if you live in not a particularly rural area as well Mm -hmm. so did you just find that riding school by chance or was it somewhere that you knew about through other people or how did that kind of work out
2: well we were very lucky that it was back in the day I'm not that old, but I'm older now. But there were were a lot of good riding schools and there was approved ones and obviously there was trekking centres as well. But we were just really lucky in that we fell into a really good one. It was by chance more than anything because again, my mum and dad wouldn't have necessarily known what a good one looked like. And there just was some really good influential people there at the time I was there. And I think they sort of saw that I obviously had a a natural sort of interest and could stay on perhaps more than some other children could. And they took a bit of an interest in me and helped me and, you know, I used to get get given ponies to bring on for the riding schools, sort the of naughty ones and and then I started buying and selling ponies when I was like 12. And, Did you? Yeah going to the local sales I had a friend that was a few years older so she could drive by the time I was 14 we would just go to the sales <laughs> at the weekends and buying sort of section A's and little Welshies and bringing them on and selling them for a couple hundred pound more and that, that was just the incentive, really. I've always loved the buying and selling and the producing.
1: But a couple of hundred quid when you're 14 is a huge amount of money. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, it was brilliant. You know, I could actually buy myself a quite a nice horse by the time I was leaving school because of the little sort of rammy ones that we'd produced along the way. Yes, yeah, so it was always self-funded and I never wanted it to be any other way because I never, I never really had any desire to have a horse bought for me and, and my mum and dad didn't wouldn't know want to go out and buy anyway. And I think that's kind of where like the racing sparked my interest as well. It's so hands-on. And you can see the progression in the horses rather than the leisure industry where perhaps it's less competitive. And we didn't necessarily have the time or the experience to go out and compete at the highest level of venting or anything like that. We had, you know, a trailer and. I think I thought traveling around to race courses with horses was quite
1: appealing. And so I went to Northern Racing College when I was 16. That was going to be my next question, actually. So you went to Northern Racing College at 16. How did you decide that racing would be the path for you at that age in terms of continuing your education there and making that your passion, I suppose, and then therefore your career, Amy, like when you've been, as you said, buying and selling Welsh Section A's from the sales, it's a bit different.
2: Yeah, no, it was. and I think I was always very interested in racing Like before I went to the Northern Racing College. So I was completely hooked on the Grand National. I was a really sad child. I went to for a tour of the Grand National for my eighth birthday of the race course. And I think the average age on the tour was about 70. And I was sort of there and there's photos of me there in the weighing room. And then the next year, I wanted to do the same again for my, for my next birthday. I
1: don't think that's sad at all. I think a lot of people listening to this will not think that's sad at all, but it's a bit niche, isn't it?
2: yeah, yeah. and you know I remember watching the Grand National in my in my grandparents' living room. So it was already there. The bug was already there. And I think because I was that sort of teenager that loved going fast, uh, was quite sort of bold and brave, loved jumping. It was racing was always going to be something I wanted to do. And I was fairly tall. I suppose at twelve, I was probably already five foot eight, and I knew I wasn't perhaps going to sustain a career as a jockey and And I also wanted horses of my own quite quickly, I realized perhaps that's hard to do if you were going to be a jockey. I went to the NRC as it was at the time and I just absolutely loved it. it it was the conversion course it was people that had already had sort of experience in horses and so they they get you riding short and riding out all the x-ray sources we did a bit of schooling and and I just absolutely loved every moment of it but alongside that I was doing my uh, BHS exams as well because I, I wanted to coach so I wanted to keep all sort of doors open because I I get quite bored quite easily <laughs> so I sort of came home and carried on Doing my BHS qualifications and that took me down to a place in Stafford called Ingustry, which was fantastic. It was I sort of pulled that horse to university because you were away from home. You, you know, you had the university life, but with the hard hard hours and the, the grass. <laughs> but we came away with you know good qualifications and and a bit of a footing to go and earn some money, and that that's where I met my partner as well. So, you know, we were only 18, 19 at that time, and we went off to Australia. We did some sales work over there, prepping yearlings. Came home again, did some, worked on some uh, point-to-point yards, national hunt yards. Really enjoyed the pre-training. I think that kind of reminded me of back in the day when we were bringing on all the feral ponies off the hills, and, <laughs> but they were just a bit smarter. They're just
1: bigger and feral. <laughs> bigger yeah. and
2: feral and worth a bit more money. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And I absolutely adored following those horses into training. By the time we, that, that sort of last crop of horses that I had any involvement in in the pre-training and breaking, I would finish racing. I kind of felt a little bit I want to keep my foot in here now and I wasn't riding out for anybody by then so we then started buying and selling some national hunt stores so we would buy some bowls and, and sell them as three-year-olds and buying between like one and six a year so it depends how uh, irresponsible we were each year <laughs> but, uh, but yeah that's been great fun and, and and you know there's been a few of those that have, haven't gone back to the sales and we've broken them and pre-trained them a little bit and found a home we'll always have them back as well. So we've had some that we've produced and sold and they've gone into racing. And when they've come out of racing, we've had them back to retrain. So we just like the whole cycle of their life, really. It's nice that we can be there at the beginning and have them back at the end and try and give them a good good second career as well.
1: It's really wonderful to hear about people balancing multiple aspects, because I think we've spoken on this podcast to people from the National Stud and Northern Racing College and various other people who've been involved in one aspect of the industry, whether that's sales or breeding or pre-training or training. But for you to have experienced all of those things and to continue to have a love of all of them and actually encompass them into your work, Amy, is I think it's pretty amazing because having done a couple of seasons in Australia, it's quite mad over there.
2: Yeah, it's mad. It's mad. It's fantastic. Absolutely amazing. And it could actually be very easy to just keep going back every winter when the weather's awful over here. (laughs) And it's so nice and sunny. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. And it's just, that's what I mean. Like Everybody, if you start talking about racing, no matter where you are in the world, it's a community. It's just a bug. It's got you. And um, it really leads the way in so many ways there's no age divide in racing. So I would say some of my closest friends, they would be quite a lot older than me, but we've we've met through racing and, and everybody loves the sport and everybody can sit down and have a common ground. And, you know, I get really excited if I go and teach a pony for rally and there's a, there's a child there that does pony racing. So I'm like, oh, fantastic. And I'll be, you know, chatting away to them, you know, who's your favorite horse at the moment? And, you know, what's your favorite race course that you've ridden at? And, and everybody wants everyone to do well. You know, even at the sales, we were real newbies. We've done lots of sports horse sales and auctions and and that's something that we're really used to but the national hunt sales are different we've worked selling for consigners but we'd never taken our own and there might be people that take you under their wing and offer you advice and and want you to do well and they you know as soon as you come out of the ring they come and tell you well done or you get a phone call that evening like it's just everybody's at
1: in it together I just I just love it there might be plenty of you listening for whom the national hunt store sales are a bit of a distant concept or a foreign world so I asked Amy how she got into it, what it was like working for a consigner and how taking her own stock differed. A little flavour of it all, as it were.
2: When we went and we, we did work for the consigners, say in Australia, for example, um, we, we've got, you know, we're very much under their, under their wing and, and we're kind of told this is how we do things, this is how we prep them, this is how they get walked and this is what they're fed. And you kind of develop your own eye as well. But, you know, what you do like, what you don't like. And I think the confirmation your eye develops all the time as well, what what, what sort of takes your a fantasy. It, it was a really good insight into sort of seeing how to deal with people on the sales day and how professional you're expected to be. You know, it's very different to the rugged sales in Wales. <laughs> but, you know, the standards of turnout and and yourself as well, not just the horses. But when we went alone, um, the first year we actually went in with a friend who was also consigning a horse and he's done plenty before. And he said, look, we're going to be stable next to each other. That really gave me the confidence to talk to potential purchasers, you know, not not be afraid to sort of have a chat and discuss what the horse has done so far. Whereas I feel like previously, when I was working for Casina, that was always somebody else's job. I was the one to pull the horse out, walk it up and and smile, and you know, sort of do do a good job. But it's a more more of a sort of personal feel to it when it's your own. And and we've we've had all these from balls you know, to three year olds. Most of them we've sort of sat on them at home before they go to the sale. We've done so much with them and. We do loads of long raining and the absolute pride and joy. You know, I I can't compare taking your own back to working for a consignor. There's nothing like taking your own back. It's just fantastic. And and to me, you know, if we make some money along the way, brilliant. But I'd love them to go to good yards. And the idea is that they're all ready to be got on and and start and, you know, wish them have been sat on at home. I want them to have a nice time in the pre-training yards. I want them to be straightforward and people to come back. And say actually that horse is well well started and strong and and ready. But so actually you know to me the price is obviously important, but where they go is is really important as well.
1: And can you tell Amy when you sit on them at home what's going to have any talent versus be a bit rubbish? <laughs> like, are you yeah, able to make? Have you have you noticed any kind of patterns about that sort of thing? Because it's one thing I found fascinating is the the capacity for a horse to show you versus not what it's got up its sleeve talent wise what I really like at home is when I start to work
2: with them in the lunch pen and I like to see one that can just just, just finds canter effortless that's that's naturally balanced that's not struggling you know that's that's not disuniting that's, that's relaxed about its canter work and everybody has their own thing but I just love to see them in those first few days where you just find them and just see and I, I do think that those ones will find life easier because they're, what they're doing easily is something that another the horse is having more effort but in terms of temperament, you know, when people say, oh, I want a really laid back horse versus I want one with a little bit of spark and fire. I, I, think, I think something like Constitution Hill is a really good example of that. You know, they don't all need to be a little bit sharp. It, just what they do when the flag's drop is, is what matters. But for me, it's, it's looking at their attitude to their work and, you know, do they just relax? Do the, are they naturally balanced in the canter? And I think that, that sort of, for me, is what, what makes me think that horse can have an easier life in training. But ironically, that's what you never see when you buy a foal because you'll see it led in walk and you might see it jogged up in trot, but you'll never see it canter.
1: You might have watched older horses and yearlings walk up and down or been to the sales, or feel that you know how a horse should move or look. But what about a foal? Having an eye for foals at the sales is something else. Like Amy said, you'd never see them canter, even though they're more than happy to bomb around in the paddock at home. So understanding which foals are going to be really good in future... Is a skill all of its own?
2: To be honest, some improve massively and some really don't. And that's, you know, that's that's just life. And that's the same with our homebreds. You know, some are fantastically gorgeous foals and they just make hideous <laughs> stream of <oil. laughs>
1: They grow a big buffy head, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And,
2: you know, you can just do your best by them and, and try not to walk into any holes. I think because it's myself and my partner going around, we've both got slightly different things that we look for. And then if there's something that we both like, we know it's a goer and we'll follow it in and we don't have a huge budget. We, we wouldn't want to spend more than we could afford. And everybody says the same, oh, it's got to have a good walk. But for me, you know, I, I love a horse with a good length of rein. It's a balancing tool and, and thinking about working correctly into a connection. And my partner really likes a good hind leg. So everything in the middle is right. I'm quite happy. But for me, I look at them as a riding horse because if we don't sell them as a store, if they miss the sale for any reason or they don't make a reserve, we've got to go home and break them in and give them a job. So I don't want to be sat on somebody with a short neck and a straight hind leg.
1: <laughs> it's funny, isn't it, how everybody has different things because I remember Bart Cummings used to say that he likes a short cannon and a deep chest. And I and I found that amazing just to have that. Yeah, exactly, exactly.
2: You know, they might have their name on 10 Cheltenham winners or, you know, I've pinned up all of these Cheltenham winners, but they might have bought 400 horses or even 4,000 horses. If we can have one standout within ten years might <laughs> happy. But if my if the horses are enjoying their job and they're coming out sound and they've got a second career, which is really important to me, is that they can do something else. We're not just looking for a quick turnaround.
1: And you mentioned your partner, Alistair, a few times. You guys have obviously been together for a really long time all through the highs and lows of the industry, (laughs) which is amazing. Just tell me about meeting and then being together over all that time. Because I think working and being in a job with your other half can be a bit tricky for some people.
2: Yeah, it's it's interesting because I actually never thought I'd want to be with somebody horsey because I think I did my own thing from such a young age. So we met when we were 18. We already lived together because we we're both working students. So we kind of knew we could tolerate each other. <laughs> and then when we went to Australia, we again lived together with staff house, just the two of us. So again, we knew we could live together. And what, they were really long hours. You know, when we were doing the sales. We we're up at four in the morning. I've never had bags and my eyes like it. <laughs>
1: you're in the Gold Coast.
2: It's surfers paradise and you can't bring yourself to buy for a drink because you're absolutely shattered.
1: Damn those magic millions.
2: I know. I know. You know, that was really hard going. And if at any point you were going to want to kill somebody, it would have been then. And and we luckily didn't want to kill each other. So we kind of came back from Australia, probably more than friends, but not really quite understanding what it was. And then we ended up back at at Ingustry again. So are we leaving here together or are you going home? She's eight hours away from me. Oh my gosh. So it was a bit of a decision to make them. And luckily, sort of where I'm from, there's a bit more going on. There's There's a bigger horse community. From there we sort of lived together, we lived at a few different places, rented a few different yards and it's just always worked. It's been like doing horses with my best friend. We've sort of found our way and I think think that's what's easier when you're younger is that you develop a way together whereas now if I had to bring somebody else in to a yard that had been doing their own thing for 34 years and I've been doing my (laughs) own thing for 34 years, it could be really difficult. There's nobody in this world that I trust more to do horses with, and we read each other's minds. And you know, we we know how we do our breakers together. We know who does what. It's like an unspoken thing. Everybody knows their roles. Alice is fantastic on the turnout. Like she's just got such an eye for detail. Alice's motto, and and it's, she's completely right, is that. If you don't do well, you need to look good, not doing very well. And I was like, that's so true. Because that is if so you look, true. If you look, if you look good and you do well, then great. But she said, if you look good and you don't do well, whether it's selling a horse or competing, at least you still look good. I'm a bit taller. So I always sort of get given the ones that want to jump about and leap all over you. And I don't mind that. You know, I quite, I quite, I quite like that role. And that's how it worked. And, you know, we've been together for a road on time now and it's been going from strength to strength since we've got our new place. We've got our, Our arena of our dreams in, and we got our walker and stables and and lunch pen, and we've got some group housing now in the winter in the sheds with the young young stock. And and it's just a dream come true, really. And yeah, living the dream, really living the family life now.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's amazing. I love to hear that, and uh, and it's amazing to hear when people are achieving what they wanted from their career and their life, and where they're living, and what you're doing, and and obviously with your family as well, which we're going to come on to. But being able to say we got what we've been aiming for with regard to the place that you live and work in is an incredible achievement, Amy. We're not young, but we're not that old. So (laughs) it's kind of, it's amazing to be able to say that and to know that you're doing just what you want to be doing, what you're destined to be doing.
2: No, it's 100%. I think you get asked a lot within horses, more in the sports horse world, what do you do? And I absolutely hate that question because I would completely class myself as jack of all trades, master of none. Oh, me too, me too. But that's what keeps me really interested. You know, we've got twenty-four horses at home at the moment. Twelve are youngsters, but they go. What to do, do with them? And I say, well, whatever they need to do, or whatever they want to do, or whatever they can do. So some some go and do a little bit of eventing, Some show jump a little bit. Some are just general riding horses. Some are clients' horses that we we school, and some are retraining. We're retraining race horses. Nice. Love getting the national hunt horses in to sort of help with their jumping. We've had a few of those in over the years, or even their flat work. And that's so rewarding because they go back into racing, you can keep following them. We've never wanted to be labelled an event yard, show jumping yard, because for me, that that would just get really boring. And you could walk down our yard and you could look in at every different stable but have something different in.
1: From little to very big. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Several years ago, Amy and Alice adopted three children. We've talked a lot on this podcast about family life in racing. Having children, raising children, not having children, juggling, miscarriage and more. But adoption... That's a new one for a lot of us that we haven't yet touched on. People who haven't been through the adoption process or had anything to do with it at all probably don't know anything about it at all. I know I don't, so I started by asking Amy for a general overview of how adoption works in the UK and what sort of things you have to go through to be considered as an adoptive parent. We should also say this is all based on Amy's own research and her own experience. It's not adoption gospel. So, yeah, there's a lot of children in care
2: needing adopting in this country. But equally, what was really good is there are quite a lot of families approved for adoption. And that's something I didn't really consider how competitive it could be. There's a couple of different ways. So you can go through your local authority and they'll you know actively try and find children that will work in your family. Or you can go through an agency, which is what we did. I feel like going through the agency worked for us because it then means you're looking for children nationally, not just in your local authority. And also you can look at their reviews, their scoring, their experiences from previous people. And, and we, we found one that had outstanding reviews and that was who we went with. They had a low, fairly local office, so you get assigned a local social worker. We were deemed quite young for going forward for adoption because, as you can imagine, most people would try naturally to have children um, for a number of years. Some might do fertility treatment following that. If it wasn't successful, they'd, they'd consider adoption. Uh, some agencies say that you have to have a year off between pitching fertility work fertility treatment sorry, and become, starting the process of adoption. And the agency we went through didn't have that as a requirement because we'd been through five years of fertility treatment, which was, I don't want to sound really negative, but a bit of a living hell in the... Uh, it does consume you and it does take over. And and because obviously it's two two women are involved, so we're both on hormones. <laughs> we're both trying to do an active job. And it it's just it's just and it and it for us unfortunately it wasn't it wasn't successful. You have to have three miscarriages before they'll do any investigation. So we felt that the third one was going to happen anyway. So when it did happen and they did investigations and then they told us there was nothing wrong, just go again. Um, we'd almost already made our peace with the fact that the third one was probably a technicality at that point and it, it felt awful doing it that way. But um we were ready, we were almost we'd almost sort of finished it in our own head. So waiting a year would have been really hard. We said, let's just get approved for adoption. Let's just get approved and it focuses your mind elsewhere. And it's a really long process anyway, so we can go through those steps. And they always say all the way through at the end when you're approved, there's absolutely no pressure to then start looking into children that are looking for families you can take six months off you can just do it at your own pace so that was that was how we refocused our sort of energy and and things so we yeah we were considered slightly younger you get two stages of uh, approval so one of them is lots of checks um authority checks dps all sorts if 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 you can check it they'll check it and then in stage two they do more checks of the home Um, you have lots of interviews uh separately and together i think it was about eight hours And then lots of training as well. You've got medicals that you need to both do. And then you go through something called Panel, which is where you get approved by a panel. All this time, you've been building up something called a PAR, which is a prospective adopter's report. So once you go to Approval Panel, once you get approved, you then get a login. It sounds awful, but it's just a website for the children that are looking for homes. And it's quite overwhelming when you get that. But actually, it's the most effective way. So the children will have a family finder who's doing the opposite. So they're looking at your profiles on LinkMaker and potential adopters and their social workers are looking at the children's profiles. So that that's where it sort of all meets and merges into one. Once you find a child or or children, you go to matching panel, which is for you and those children specifically. And once you get approved at matching panel, that's when the ball starts rolling with introductions and Yeah, becoming a family. But it is a long, long process. I was
1: just going to say, it sounds really hard work and time consuming. Like having just been through all of that hell of fertility treatment for quite a long time, to go through this subsequently, it sounds like it just requires a lot of not just practical, but also emotional input. You're spending a lot of time. You need a lot of, I was going to use the word tick boxes, but I'm not sure that's right. But do you know what I mean? Like you have to, you have to fulfill a lot of requirements. Let's put it that way. You do, you do, and you,
2: I think that for us, because we're a really strong couple, like we know everything about each other. We very rarely have any disagreements. There's not a lot to to drag up. Um, but had you have had a difficult relationship previously, so you have to disclose like previous relationships in the last ten years. Oh my
0: goodness,
2: okay, yeah, yeah. So, so it could be that you had unfortunately had a bad relationship in the past. It was, you know, it wasn't your fault, but they'd want to know quite a lot of details about that. It's just quite invasive, like the questioning, but we found it all fine because you know we haven't got anything to hide. It did take about a year to get approved, but it's the time and the commitment to it. I mean, it's paperwork like you've never seen before. That's only the start. So once you get, you know, placed with children, then the paperwork starts again.
1: As someone who has a natural aversion to paperwork, that sounds like my idea of hell. So <laughs> anything that comes in a big file, I'm like, oh no. Um, but yeah, it's good. And how does it work from a working perspective? you and as both self-employed and am assuming outdoors very busy it's not like the two of you have a sort of standard nine to five where you pop into an office and pop back again how is that factored into the adoption process Amy and are there any restrictions or exclusions from that perspective depending on what you do
2: in theory everybody can adopt that's both being self-employed it just takes a lot longer to sort of prove you have to just get lots of accounts and proof of what you've been earning and what you expect and then you have to provide the forecast of what you're going to earn after the children are placed with you, just to make sure that you know you've got your you've got everything in place and savings as well. So you have to disclose what savings you've got and how you're going to use those to sort of help you in the, in the early few months. Self-employed people 100% can adopt. Single single people can adopt. There is very few reasons why you couldn't adopt. I suppose criminal history would be one of the main things. It's very very open in that sense, but it's just a lot more evidence and proof needed from a self-employed person's point of view, really the interviews are quite time-consuming that could be quite difficult to factor in you know there was a lot of days in our diary where people were coming to see us it's almost like moving house and uh trying to find all the evidence of everything you put (laughs) in double glazing and
1: have you got a receipt for that amy yeah exactly like two o'clock in
2: the morning just waking up going where's my marriage certificate you know, it it was, there was lots of that. And that's probably when you start to annoy each other a little bit because you're like, well, you, oh, I don't know where it is. And I knew where it would have been <laughs> in the old house. I've got no idea where it is in the new house. It's...
1: When the kids came to you, did you both take a chunk of time off or how does it work in practice of the first few months settling in and and I guess making a routine for your new family when the two of you have been working pretty hard and and doing as we all do exactly what you want? We put all of the all of the
2: measures in place. Everyone kept saying, How are you going to prepare? Are you prepared? Are you ready? And I just keep kept saying, I don't think I can be, because physically you can prepare the house and have all the equipment that you need. But mentally, I don't know how you can prepare for something that you've you've not ever had before. It is always a always a shock. They say like there's adoption depression where you, you sort of mourn your previous life and things like that. And I wouldn't say that I felt that but what I did feel was a lot of anxiety that when they arrived it was absolutely nothing to do with their behavior they were just absolutely amazing but not being able just to walk out into the yard and do evening yards I didn't realize how mindful it is for me to go out in the evening and check all the horses and you know give them their dinner and take the dogs out with me with a cup of tea and and that all happens around about bedtime (laughs) so we had to get somebody else in we we got we got some really good yard girls and they're fantastic and but we had to get somebody extra to come and do evening yards. And that for me was really difficult because I would be in the house and itching almost to want to go out and just check that, that the horses were fine. And it took a while to let go of that. It's so much better now. And to to be fair, they are all the yards with us in evening yards. And it's like, you know, that's how life is now and, and they're they're there. But they they got no horse sense. You know, we, we took three children under the age of four and, and the the whole time is spent making sure that they are safe and they understand you know animals and, and and they they were so so good and they adapted so well but it was unsettling the first few months from I think more anxiety than anything like not wanting to hurt these children and yeah. wanting to keep them safe but but also you know your horses and your life is right on the doorstep
1: but also when you've had a, an entire life around horses and you and Alice which has got this kind of innate sense of how they're moving where they're moving what their mood is when you're about to be in a danger point or not I think as a person who spends a lot of time around horses you get that or animals in general you get that feel for the the cues don't you you do and and children
2: have never been around them it's it's amazing actually how you kind of go wow they actually of course they have no understanding of course they don't but I mean our guys they've got fantastic horse sense now but it was it was quite a tense time (laughs) (laughs) there was lots of like oh stop no, <laughs> don't do that. No, Don't that, that, that. don't don't that. Yeah, 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 there, was, yeah. there was lots of that's the ouchy fence and that's the you know, they bite at that and they kick at that end. But yeah, so it's quite isolating the first couple of months because the children then you can't overwhelm them with with new people. They advise that it's a good two, three weeks before anybody else comes in. And I completely understand why that has to be, because they need to bond with you. And they need to know that you're going to be the caregivers and you're going to be the ones doing everything for them and and they need to attach themselves to you. Of course, yeah. But at that moment, you're thinking, this is the one time I actually really need my friends and family and you can't have them. Once you get through the first couple of months where you can start to introduce family members, friends, uh, nursery days, things like that, it all just starts to just slow down and calm down and and settle. But it is it is absolute wind tunnel for the first month. It is just the shock of, I actually can't just nip and do that. And I actually can't just nip and do and Oh, I can see the farrier's just driven up, but there's nothing I can do about that right now. You have fun out there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and to be fair, the first people our children met were the farrier and the vet because they were there most weeks. We went out into the yard and they were meeting these people anyway. So it felt a bit strange that they weren't able to meet their grandparents. They already knew the name of the vet and the farrier and... <laughs> Had already carried the shoe round on the tongs, and
1: (laughs) they worked out who was important in your life very early, didn't they, Amy? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So so I
2: think, I mean, they're just so outgoing. They're just just great little bunch of people, and I feel like perhaps we didn't get, we weren't completely aware of actually how intense the first month or two is, but potentially that's because of our lifestyle, and maybe there's not as many people in our position to have adopted. So it was the fact that the children are your family. And all of a sudden, can't go and do what you were doing. The minute you're into your normal family routine, it's it's like they weren't ever here. But I can imagine being employed in a yard, perhaps, you know, your energy levels are quite low. And when you start to go back to work,
1: you sort
2: of think, wow, I used to be able to have a restaurant, I right know, but... <laughs>
1: Returning to work is one of the things we have discussed before on the podcast. And if you haven't heard it, I'd encourage you to go and listen to the episode with Dominique and Dr. Anne-Louise McKinnon of the IJF, where they talk about the physical and mental effects of getting back to it when your life is completely transformed by the arrival of kids and you've had a period of weeks or months not working at your usual physical intensity. It's a time when everything is on its head. The transition phase is really challenging and we really need to talk more about it. This is what Racing Home is all about.
2: Yeah, if you accept that it is going to be really hard. Um, one thing I found really hard was that a lot of my friends, they meant well, but they'd message me every day. How are we, how's it going? How's it going? How's it going? Had any tantrums yet? And I'm like, no. Yeah. <laughs> But everybody wants to be involved and wants to be supportive, and, and that is great. But you, you know, picking up your phone is quite difficult in that first month, and you know, you've know you got to be there for them 100%, but it's amazing how you are torn. And I imagine if it's somebody that, for example, works in a racing yard and, and your favourite horse is going racing, you're probably so torn between the fact that I want to take that horse racing, but also I need to bond with my new family. And you can't turn that off. If you love your job, you can't turn it off. So it does depend. And I suppose if you don't love your job, you're not going to race back. But if you do, you've just got to be able to find a way through, you know, and and get it to work together. depends how good your working relationship is with your boss. If you're employed, you've got to have references and people have got to give you character references. And if you don't really want people to know that you're looking into adoption, that's really hard as well because you've got to disclose things. You've got to say, this is what we're doing. We're getting approved. And Very quickly, it could be out there that, oh, you're adopting, but you might only be on stage one. You might only be in the first couple of months. So there's got to be an element of confidentiality as well. You know, I probably only had to tell five people, but I had to, because I had to get references and things off them. And if they were people that I didn't have a great relationship with, that might have been quite awkward. Luckily for me, they're all
1: brilliant, lovely people. But that's something to consider. If you're a private individual who's also been through an unsuccessful period of fertility treatment... You might just not want to tell the world that you're being approved for adoption. We get it. It might be a huge wrench to confide in your boss for you. But what about them too?
2: Yeah, and do the bosses feel comfortable writing references? Sort of offering them a bit of support, saying, look, you know, if you do have to provide a character reference to a member of staff, giving them a little bit of support of how to do that is really important. Because they obviously want to do the right thing, so being able to give em- employers support in that area would would be good. And yeah, it brings me on a little bit to the point I wanted to mention. I wasn't even aware of even after we'd been approved. It was only through a campaign that was running online where you know that you get self-employed maternity pay. You get up to thirty-nine weeks. You get one hundred seventy-two pound a week for thirty-nine weeks, which is fantastic. It's great, isn't it? You know, adds adds up over the weeks, especially when you're not working. Self-employed adopters would get nothing but a a employed adopter would so as it stands at the moment yeah an employed adopter would get their statutory adoption pay which is exactly the same as maternity pay 172 pounds a week why is being self-employed any different and why would a self-employed person on maternity leave get the pay but somebody that's adopting isn't i completely understand that if you've been through pregnancy childbirth maternity pay is there for you but when you adopted children you need that time off to bond. And okay, you're maybe not physically recovering from giving birth, but you are bonding with that child and you are feeling so many emotions. And I just don't understand why that support isn't there And it. So if you're employed, you'll get your adoption pay from the government. If you're on maternity leave and you're self-employed, you'll get that pay. But if you're a self-employed adopter, you get nothing.
1: That just seems like a massive incongruency. Like, why is that? I'd I'd love for somebody to be able to justify the government's reasoning for not making those things equal. Because I agree that maternity pay is really important, but adoption pay is also really important because apart from the reasons that you've mentioned, if you're self-employed, you're not earning anything in those weeks and months. And so actually having that support is so important to encourage people that this is the route that they could go down if that's what they want. That just feels like a very unlevel playing field, quite honestly.
2: Yeah, it's very strange. I don't understand the difference between self-employed and employed, to be honest. I don't know why it's something that employed people get and self-employed don't. And, and we're trying to encourage people to adopt children, you know, say that this is something you can do. I mean, when you look at the rates of adoption, boys over the age of four wait the longest. And imagine if you, know, you had somebody that was more than willing to adopt, but they're self-employed and they say, well, I'm going to have 39 weeks of nothing. And I mean, we were lucky in that, you know, we had some savings and, but it couldn't have gone on forever. I probably had eight weeks. I wouldn't, again, it wouldn't be off because we've got 24 hours at home, but I'd had eight, eight, eight weeks off teaching. You know, we, we didn't have completely time off, but you can't really hang around. You've <laughs> got to kind of get, get going again. And it was, we were lucky that, you know, the children settled really well, but if they hadn't,
1: you'd then be looking at more time, not earning Just finally, we've mentioned the word support there quite a few times for both employers and adopters. And I know in your role, coaching and teaching and and everything else that you do with everybody from across the equestrian world, that supporting other people is a big part of your role, Amy. Do you want to just touch a little bit on the coaching element and how that has grown with you as an adopter or kind of translated across and and I guess it's the sort of melding of two worlds really you know the coming together of coaching and teaching and adopting children how has that kind of all come together for you
2: I didn't realize at the time but I, I like to understand people as well as horses I think you know there's a lot of people that are very good at horses but but that's only half of the combination I feel like a lot of those skills have really helped me with becoming a parent <laughs> you know And I think training horses helps as well, you know, consistency and fairness. You know, everybody's like, gosh, uh, they've got good manners, aren't they sweet? Or they walk up to people and say hi, shake their hand. And I said, but we're just consistent and calm. And I think, you know, when you are a coach, you've got to be clear, you've got to be consistent, you've got to be calm. When we were doing all of our training with the adoption agency, they talk a lot about therapeutic parenting, and but we already train people therapeutically. We just don't perhaps call it that sometimes. So, giving explanations as to why this is going to work, and to why this mindset works better than perhaps this, and um and understanding how you know riders communicate with their horses, I think I think it really did help. We didn't have a clue what we were going to be like as parents. So that was one of the scariest things. Like we we do everything so well together, but I hope we do this well together as well. But I think it's that that background, and you know, we, we coach quite a lot of young riders as well. Kind of over the years, seeing what we do and don't like. From the way children behave and perhaps the way people handle those situations. Um we've all made mistakes and grow as a coach as well as a as a person. But but no, I think I think it's definitely had a positive impact. And I think that's probably the same with anybody that's that's working with animals. Well, we know that shouting doesn't work with animals. Kindness and understanding, but being clear and having boundaries works. So true. We our social worker walks in sometimes, and she used to say, um, obviously, once it's become legal, you don't you don't have your social workers anymore. But she used to come in and say, "Gosh, well, your house is calmer than you know, a house with one child in. You've got three. And I, and I said, well, well, it might just be a good day. But they've been outside. They've been busy all morning. They've, they're, they're absolutely shattered at nighttime. They eat their dinner, have a story, never bath, they go to bed. They sleep through. Everybody used to joke and say, oh, I bet you're getting no sleep now. Some getting more sleep than they used to have. Because <laughs> so they, they, they're in bed uh, half seven I said they do not get up until eight o'clock I can't go out into the yard because they're still in bed but we just keep them busy you know they have freedom freedom of food and food <laughs>
1: and exercise and and fresh air, and that's it yeah
2: yeah and I think that's you know kind of learned that and you, you see like the difference in children when they start to grow in confidence when you're teaching them and how encouragement can really really pay off and and sometimes you feel a bit silly like over encouraging and and making a huge great big deal about the smallest things but they just change and their confidence just grows and grows and you know so we've seen that with our with ours over the years definitely
1: oh it sounds amazing amy god i've loved talking to you thank you very much
0: yeah thanks for having me no it's been great that's it for today thanks for listening and don't forget to follow the podcast to receive all new episodes as they land it would really help us if you could rate the podcast and leave a review telling us what you'd like to hear about this is a resource for you and everyone in the industry and we'd love to hear from you we'll be back in a couple of weeks so see you then